So last week, if you've been here with us, or if you're new, uh, but it looks like pretty much everybody's been here with us, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we spent the last couple weeks in the story of the woman at the well, and we still got a little bit longer yet there before we move on. And uh, a couple weeks back, David talked about uh, what it means uh, whenever Christ talks about living water and why the woman would have been confused because we are used to Jesus saying weird mystical Jesus things and so whenever he says things like you need to be born again or you'll have living water for us we're like yeah those are Jesus things for other people those are weird things to say because up to that point in history uh, it wasn't casual in conversation for people to be like yeah no be born again or at least not in this part of the world uh, and not in the context that Jesus was talking about and so that's kind of an odd phrase but we discuss that. And so living water is another one of those things where, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to replace the well with living water, which to her ears said, Jesus was saying, I'm going to replace the well with an entire river, which makes no sense in casual conversation. But David broke that down for us and what that means and things for purification. And uh, they don't call them baptistries in Judaism, but the Jewish equivalent to baptistries and how that imagery was all folded in. And so last week I uh, gave us some of the extra context of what was going on sociopolitically and just the general tensions that were happening in the conversation because a lot of bad things happened between uh, Israel and Samaritans at several points in history. And there's still a lot of existing tension. And I don't have a million maps with me this week, I'm sorry. Uh, but I do have at least one from last week, and it's that one right there. And this is what Israel looked like at around Jesus' time. And... Uh, like I said, for anybody who might not have been here, at one point in Israel's history, uh, there was a civil war. A really, really bad one. And the upper half of the country went with the title Israel, because, you know, when you do a civil war and you want a coup, I guess you just steal the whole country's name. Because that's polite. And they created their new capital, which was Samaria. And then... The other portion of the nation that stuck with David's family line, the lower portion became known as Judah, and they stuck with Jerusalem as their capital. And then whenever the Greeks and the Romans and everybody came in here and conquered all this stuff, they kind of made it into just these large swaths of, of not really incorporated territories, just chunks of land that they named because they have somebody as a governor looking over for these regions. So each of the governors knows what they're looking after. And these are the chunks of Israel that Jesus would have been familiar with in his day. And he is all the way up top from Galilee, especially Nazareth, right there, kind of, it's not really close to the border, but on this map, it looks particularly close to the border. And then there's all of Samaria, and then there's Judea. And Judea is the region what used to be the kingdom of Judah. And so it's common for Jews, whenever they practice their festivals and things, uh, to go to Jerusalem, which posed a problem for all the people who live way up in Galilee. They have to, if they want to be good Jews and get to Jerusalem, walk through Samaria, which is the place that held the uh, geopolitical traders because they betrayed the kingdom and were arguably one of the many causes for its downfall. I mean, Israel's sin was the cause for its downfall, but they might have held them off for a few more years if they were a united kingdom instead of two things bickering over allies. You never know. And uh, all at the same time, they're also racial ethnic traitors because the Old Testament's very clear that Israel 
was supposed to be God's people. And they were supposed to take husbands and wives from within the tribes. And Samaritans, they didn't care about that. I mean, really by this point, the throne didn't care about it much either because Solomon was known for having a few wives, shall we say. And you mostly married people if you were royalty for treaties. I marry this princess because I like the things that her dad can do for me as their king, and he likes the things I can do for them. So then we seal the deal with the marriage, because that's what you did back then. Uh, so really, Israel didn't have a leg to stand on, but they were still mad at the Samaritans anyways for being racial ethnic traitors. And then the really, really big problem was that since they couldn't go the Samaritans who called themselves Israel at the time, couldn't go to Jerusalem to do the normal religious festivals. They set up a totally different temple. So a completely false temple on a separate mountain. And if you had asked them at the time where certain things happened in the biblical narrative, they would have told you, oh, it actually, all these things, like Abraham nearly sacrificing his son and things like that, would have happened on our mountain, and they're lying to you about it because they're being stingy with their religion down there. So on top of that, they're religious traitors. They broke God's covenant because they made a false temple, and they're changing his word by saying it happened on their mountain and not ours. So there's a whole lot of pretty good reasons why Jews would want to avoid Samaritans. It wasn't just casual, I don't like you. They weren't upset about random, arbitrary, immutable characteristics. That I just don't like you because you're whatever category or whatever minority or this, that. They have a lot of, a laundry list of very good reasons to be upset with Samaritans. And whenever you might have heard it said that Jews would walk around Samaria because there's a city called Samaria, you think it's Samaria. And no, they are walking around as best they can. The entire geographical region, sometimes into areas that are populated by geopolitical enemies because they really don't like these people that much. Which is the equivalent of going all the way around Rhode Island. Because you don't like somebody. That's some commitment. I don't have that much commitment. So you kind of have to admire it a little bit. But it's not a good mentality to have. But all at the same time, it's kind of hard to blame them. Because of everything that happened. And so it's very peculiar for Jesus to say, not only are we going to Samaria, but he's going to the heart of Samaria, because he's in Samaria, Samaria. And he is... He doesn't really tell the disciples why. He's just kind of like, I have some business there, which is unusual for a rabbi to say. And so they go. And Jesus, uh, at the hottest part of the day, tells them to go into town and pick up some things. And he is going to wait all alone by a well and the hottest part of the day. And all of a sudden, a woman shows up. And he starts violating all these taboos that we've just talked about to speak with her. And last week, I talked about how all he does is present her with the truth. And somehow, some way, being told the truth about herself and then her standing with God was enough to convince her that this is clearly the Messiah. But there's more that happens in the conversation that I deliberately left out or danced around for this week uh, to save them for this week. So, uh, if we can put up the verses from John 4, they should be coming up behind me. This, these are the verses 
where part of their conversation that we haven't covered just yet. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Then the woman answered him, I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And and the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And uh, And Jesus said to her, I am he who speaks to you. So, we have this, the first part of the conversation you'll recognize from last week, because he just tells her her current life situation. And a lot of people, whenever they read it, like I said last week, there's an assumption here that this woman is adulterous. And now, unless there's just a whole host of uh, scholarly work, because there are people in the world who are considerably smarter than me and are paid to look through all these really old books and documents, unless there's something really, really compelling out there that says, oh, this was clearly adultery. Scripture never tells us she's an outright adulterous woman. She might have been, or she could have been very unfortunate and had a lot of husbands who died. Uh, She could have run out of go-wells in the go-well system, so her husband's brothers are all dead, and now it's hard for her to remarry because she might be past an age where she can have children. Uh, She might be having fertility issues. Any number of things could have been happening. And she might very well have been in an adulterous relationship, and that's what makes it difficult for her to get married. But now she's currently in a situation where she's just staying with somebody who will give her a home. And Jesus tells her what's going on, and because she's never met him, she's, oh, okay, you're a prophet. And this is an awkward conversation to have with a stranger, Uh, Those kinds of conversations are awkward with anyone, even like the doctor, when you kind of have to dance around weird things that are happening with you, let alone a complete and total stranger who might very much so dislike you. And if she's coming to the well at the hottest part of the day with nobody else, she's just clearly trying to avoid everyone. And now there's a religious leader who's all up in her stuff, and so she clearly just kind of tries to deflect or diffuse whichever one, and changes the subject very, very quickly from her current living situation. And that's where she talks about these mountains, and the mountains of worship. Because she figured, what's going to get a rabbi a bit more riled up than my personal life? How's about the fake temple, the potentially fake temple? Because she doesn't necessarily seem sold on their temple, by the way she's talking. You know, she seems like she could take it or leave it. It's, it's a hill. People go there and do things. I don't go there because people there don't like me. She seems fairly indifferent, but hopefully she can get them talking about something that's not her. And he has an incredibly interesting response. 
especially since the entire Old Testament, uh, or at least particularly the first five books, are about how you're supposed to interact on that mountain. And she might not be the most religious person, but she's a Samaritan woman, so she understands Samaritans care a lot about the first five books of the Bible. They were the only books of the Bible they used in Samaria. But on top of that, she would have at least known that a Jew, especially a, a rabbi, should be pretty familiar with those five books. Uh, should have them memorized. Pretty close, if not wholeheartedly memorized. Pretty darn close to memorized. And he just says something along the lines of, I'm not worried about mountains. So this guy is not worried about what the whole first five books of the Bible have to say. Or in her world, the entire Bible has to say about how you interact with God. That's a very shocking statement for any rabbi to make, but especially in this conversation. But all at the same time, he he couches it very carefully because he doesn't say that you're not, he doesn't just leave it at, I don't particularly care about the mountains, but he just says, a day is coming when you're not going to worship either on that mountain or the other. You're going to worship when that day comes. And what he says is another one of those interesting Jesus phrases that makes a whole lot of not much sense. But we're used to it. And that's why we got to take a step back and kind of dissect it a little bit. Where he says, but God is looking for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. And then he adds on this even more intense little phrase of, and the hour is now here. Which, some of that might be John doing a clever little callback, if you recall all the way back to John 2, because that was forever ago. There was a point where he goes to a wedding, and his mother asks him to make some more wine. And his response to her aside from being brave enough to address his mother as woman, was, my hour has not yet come. And suddenly, a little while later, he tells this complete and total stranger that the hour has come. And that this is, interestingly enough, I mean, Jesus has had conversations with some folks up to this point, and he has been preaching Uh, But if you'll read some of the other Gospels, you'll notice Jesus goes to great pains throughout certain parts of his ministry to not overtly claim to people that he's the Christ. This happens at very careful, particular times. And if he's got 12 people following him around, they've put two and two together, especially if we remember Nathaniel's call where he just says, oh, you saw me under the tree and I don't even know you. You're clearly the Christ. But he hasn't just been going around advertising it yet. And so the first person outside of his crew of 12 that he entrusts this information with is this woman. The most unlikely candidate in the entire world to evangelize on his behalf, he selects. And then on top of revealing to her that he is the Christ, 
He then tells her, oh no, we're going to worship. But it will be in spirit and truth rather than the mountains. Because her and her culture and the Jews were fixated on the ritual. Which you can't blame them. That's literally what the whole Torah is about. is the ritual of how do you come close to God? How do we be, go near God? It's all about sacred holy spaces. And if you enter into the space while you're uncleansed, you're going to die. Like you will keel over and die. And so they are very, very careful about how they interact with the temple space. And so he's telling them we don't, we don't have to be in this space to worship. And you might think to yourself, because it's the word spirit and it's, it's the Bible. Oh, this, must, this might have something to do with the spirit. Well, if you're some eagle-eyed folks, you might notice that the S isn't necessarily capitalized. Which is whenever we're talking about that spirit, that pneuma. I mean, it's the same word, but this particular pneuma. So what exactly does this spirit mean if it's not the spirit? And some people might take that to mean like, I don't know, like it's very authentic. Like vigorous worship. That's not really quite what Jesus is going here for. I mean, you should be authentic and vigorous in your worship. Um, But that's not entirely what's happening here. So some people say, oh, well, it's just... um, Worshippers, you you know, in the in the vein of authenticity and things like that, you're just, I mean, you're kind of zoning into yourself, and you're, it's like people. Some people try to mean it as a very introspective thing, um, and I, not for, I don't say things just for the sake of ruffling feathers, because that's pointless, and I don't ever want to say things to be rude. I just feel like saying things if I feel like they're true and need to be said. Um, Jesus isn't. If there, if your authentic self, as we were to say, and not you just being your genuine personality because you have enough self-esteem and self-worth to be your genuine self and not be fake in front of other people, that's that's a whole different conversation. But to uh, to really be concerned about um, affirming or authenticating your own just genuine inner bubble worship between you and God, and that's really all you're concerned about. If 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 there were something about your authentic self that were perfectly fine and didn't need changing, Jesus wouldn't need to have come in the first place. So it's not necessarily about you. It is, but not in that sense. It's Whenever he's talking about these geographical locations, he's clearly saying something along the lines of wherever it is you are, you can worship. Which is crazy, because every year of everyone's lives since the founding of Israel, everybody has journeyed to one mountain or the other to worship God properly. And suddenly Jesus says, you're not going to need to. Which seems to then, for one thing, it's already groundbreaking, because we're totally taking geography out of it. So nobody has the particular high ground. Um... There's really bad Star Wars jokes in there somewhere. And so he's taking away the geographical argument out of it, but he also seems to be taking somewhat of, of the ritual out of it too. Because if you can't go to the mountains, you can't do the rituals. So whenever he's telling her you'll worship in spirit and truth, it's not only that you're going to worship wherever you are. It must be that wherever you are, you're already clean because the spirit 
in order to worship, you have to be where God is. And God can only be somewhere that's clean and cleansed. And so if you don't have to be at the mountain to worship, then God must be wherever you are. And if God's where you are, you must be clean. And so for her, that's how she's going to be putting two and two and, and two together and all the, or however many two she needs to come to the conclusion that this guy is telling me that we, we're, going, we're going to be made holy. That's effectively what he's saying and that's what she would have understood. We're going to be made holy? And then so she makes the comment of, well, that's only going to happen when the Messiah comes. Because the Samaritans were aware of the Messiah. Their messianic prophecies all the way back into the Torah. So they're waiting for the same Messiah too. And he says, the hour has now come. The Messiah is here. And he happens to be speaking with you. And so last week, whenever we talked about the fact that God just stepped into her life, and the only thing Jesus really did was tell her the truth of where she stands in both life and with God, he's now also telling her, yes, and in acknowledging your standing with God in front of him, before him, like she's doing with Jesus, you, there's a way to be made clean in there. And so we have this perfect little example of watching the entire gospel message unfold in front of this woman. Because he just steps into her life intentionally and says, you need something that only the Messiah can give you. And guess what? He can give that to you. And uh, the Messiah happens to be sitting right in front of you and he doesn't particularly care that you're a Samaritan or a woman or a traitor or whatever label she would have been slapped with. He wasn't particularly concerned about that. And so probably in a little bit of deflection and self-consciousness, when something we can all do, she then starts couching all of her own inadequacies in the middle of a bunch of theological stuff. Because sometimes if we got our own junk and we don't want to take care of it, we'll then shroud ourselves in a bunch of obscure theological conversations to make ourselves feel better. Because we're doing the religious churchy thing, right? We're just going to, we're going to do all this theology and we're going to sidestep the issue of my heart and it'll be fine. And then Jesus just smacks that completely out of the way and says, yes, and God is not concerned particularly about whatever you or your neighbors might think about your systematic, organized, whatever. He's concerned about you and your spirit being clean so that he and his spirit can now dwell with you exactly where you are and you can worship wherever you are because he dwells with you. And that's really the whole point of the entire Bible. Is God wants to dwell with you right where you are. And you have to be made clean for that to happen. And so you need to come to the Messiah in the same way that he's come right to all of us, all of humanity, by stepping into human history. And he offers you the chance to be made clean. 
And he's not even necessarily talking about you being a horrible, awful, loathsome person. Uh, because there are an awful lot of good people in the world who still have no idea who Jesus is. Because God wasn't particularly, I mean, he wants you to be a good person. But if you go and look at Leviticus, there's some stuff in there that has nothing to do with you being a good or bad person. That has things about like you washing hands properly and this and that. It's all about the fact that you have to be holy and clean to dwell in his presence. And the only way to do that is to remove all sin for all time, once and for all. That's why even your little innocuous actions that you think aren't a problem, they're a problem might not make you a bad person, but they do separate you from God. And Jesus makes a way for you to be one with him and the Father again. And you can worship in spirit and truth because you've been made clean by the work of Christ on the cross. And now you can worship wherever you are. And God is always with you. And that has something to say to us as a body. Because we kind of get what that means now for this woman. What did it mean for her to worship in spirit and truth in that moment? Or what does it mean for us to worship in spirit and truth? But it also means something for us collectively as a body to worship in spirit and truth. Because that means uh, we have in our worship, because if you were here way all the way back at the beginning of the year, we had a whole sermon on worship where I talked too long again. And if you'll recall, part of what Romans tells us is whenever Paul talks about worship, he's not particularly talking about singing, though singing is very important. And God, multiple times in Psalms, and Paul, multiple times throughout the epistles, tells people to sing. Sing God, honor God, praise Him in worship and song. Um, But whenever he talks about worship, he talks about it very holistically and says, your lives are to be a living sacrifice. And that is your reasonable act of worship. And so whenever we live life together, if we're going to really truly worship in spirit and truth, we have to acknowledge the fact, just like Jesus says, you'll be a city on a hill, salt of the earth, all those kinds of things. He uses all this imagery to tell you wherever God is, that tends to stick out. Because that seems to be what all of humanity is looking for. Where's God? Where's he at? How can we be with him? And if you have him, it tends to be kind of conspicuous. And so to acknowledge the fact that you have the spirit amongst yourselves, and that comes with the things of like caring for one another, even if that means you give something up because somebody else is a little bit less mature, then you do that. And that's fine because you should consider them more important than yourself. All those kinds of things. But it also means that when we worship and when we live our lives, if we're going to worship in true, genuine spirit and truth, then we must, our worship must look like Jesus' worship or his life. And it seems like you can really boil it down to whenever we live our lives as spirit-filled people, i.e. when we worship, uh, your lives should honor the three same things that Jesus honored throughout his life. Which was it honored God. It honored what the word says. And it honored other people. 
And if we can be a people who, at, at the end of all things, uh, not thinking we did anything perfectly and understanding that we need grace, but if we can hold our heads high confidently because we firmly believe that Jesus, there's enough grace in Jesus to cover for our shortcomings as a collective body, and that in the grace of God and Jesus, we all stood together and said our worship here together as a spirit-filled place honored God, his word, and the other human beings that he created and asked us to love, then I think we're on a pretty good track for God to be pleased with us as a body. And then... Uh, and whenever Christ says this stuff, and he says he's the Messiah, she, she probably wouldn't have been super familiar with these passages because her people didn't really use this portion of the Bible. But a lot of the stuff he was telling her would have been fulfilling certain portions of Ezekiel. And this is a portion I just want to read for us as we bring things to a close. And uh, this, was happening at, this happens in Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is God talking to uh, people who are scattered out and about how he's going to bring them back together. Because this was after the, f the fall of the kingdom and other rulers had come in and oppressed God's people. At verse 24 in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, God says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and your idols I will cleanse you sounds an awful lot like living water and it says I will give to you a new heart and a new spirit and I will that I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart a flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Which seems an awful lot like God wants people to worship in spirit and truth. This is why Jesus says the hour has now come. Because the Messiah is here to place his spirit in you to make you clean from here until kingdom come. And the only way to be made clean is to be before the Messiah and acknowledge that you're separated from God and that you need his cleansing. You might not be a particularly bad person or a particularly good person, but we all need to be clean before God. And he's made the way. And so now the only thing that's left is for you to make up your mind, if you haven't already, about if you would like to be someone who can dwell with God and be one of his people. And to rest in the knowledge that you can be filled with his spirit from now until kingdom come and be secure in his love and his grace and his mercy. So that's up to you. If you don't know what that means, then please, and the band can start coming up, by the way, for response. In the time of response, if you don't know what that means, feel free to come up and talk to me, because I would love to talk to you about it. If you are already 
firmly, um, firmly held within his hand, and you just have some other business to take care of God, take care of with God in response, then do that. If you want to come up here and pray, you can. You can pray right where you're at, whichever. It's fine. But today, while we respond, why don't we sing together as one uh, in spirit and truth? Because you have been cleansed and God is with you right where you are and every day from here on in. And that seems like a pretty decent reason to sing. So we're going to sing together. And like I said, if you don't know what any of this means, please come and talk to me.